Hello, 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 everybody, and welcome back to the Industrial Cybersecurity Pulse Podcast. Happy to have you back with us today. I am your humble host, Gary Cohen. And I am your also humble host, Tyler Wall. No, you were humble this time. Last time you were not so humble, but that's Trying okay. to change. Trying to change. <laughs> I, I understand. We have a great one for you today. I say that every time. They're all great. They're all just wonderful little podcasts. Uh, but somebody we've been wanting to talk to for a while. Today, we're going to be talking to Leslie Carhart from Dragos, Director of Incident Response from North America. Had a terrific conversation with Leslie out at RSA in San Francisco, which we will also talk about a bit during this podcast. Tyler and I returned not too long ago from the RSA conference in San Francisco. Uh, it was enormous. <laughs> It was huge. By some accounts, I think there were 55,000 people there. We were taking yep. Ubers to the event out at the Moscone Center. And our, our drivers kept going, what's going on here? This is as crowded as we've seen the Moscone Center in years. So mm -hmm. it was a, it was a sizable event. Oh, yeah. And it was it was a great event. But I do have a sizable question first. Um, oh, before we okay. get too, Let's get too into far that into it. Question. Yeah. Uh, so what is your favorite board game? Ah. I, for a time, liked Trivial Pursuit quite a bit. Um, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go old school. I like I stress on the I like playing Monopoly with my children. Okay. I don't think my children like playing Monopoly <laughs> with me. It's not a me thing. It's just they get competitive, and so anytime they're losing money, it's really hard and. My daughter has to have Broadway and Park Place every time, and she will sell everything in the world for those two spots. Yeah. So it's, uh, they tend to start off really well and fun. And then after about a half hour, it's like a, it's, it's, you know, the baton death march. It's a grueling process to get through uh, a game of Monopoly. Still like it yourself. Yeah. I like, uh board game wise i guess i guess it's i mean it's a board game bananagrams i think bananagrams is fun have you never played bananagrams i have never even uh, no, it's not true i've heard of bananagrams but i've yeah. never played bananagrams it's, don't know anything it's just like a it's a playoff of um scrabble uh pretty much where you get a bunch of letters and every time you create a word you have to grab a new letter the whole thing um otherwise if i was going with like a card game i do like playing some some just classic poker just mm. Uh, some regular old Texas Hold'em, uh, seven card stud, another great variation on poker. Uh, yeah, used to play it a lot in college uh, at the university, or sorry, uh, my Nazarene University. So we had to keep it on the down low because it was gambling, but uh, it was a good time. You can't gamble at the uh, at the Christian University. No, you can't. No, that's I. I uh, first off, I didn't know that you were a, a poker player. Okay. We were having a conversation recently at RSA. We went to an event one evening and we played darts and poker. And, and I think Tyler said, this is like the manliest night I've had in forever. He was drinking an old fashioned <laughs> and playing darts and poke uh, darts and uh, pool. But poker, yeah. that's 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 a pretty like dude thing to do. It was a very dude thing to do, except we were playing it with instead of like old fashions and whiskey. I think we're drinking like sangria. It was <laughs> it's like a. A nice little fruity uh, experience playing with playing some poker with the boys. So yeah, there was like eight of us though playing at once, which is about. I think it's either it's either seven or eight is the most you can play with one hand or like one deck of cards. Uh, so it was always a full table. It was like five dollar buy-ins. So if you're lucky, you can walk away with thirty-five dollars if you sweep the table. But it was usually a break-even kind of thing. 
I'm a terrible gambler. Not that I'm a bad gambler. I don't gamble. I don't like losing money enough. And that's generally what happens. So I was in Vegas not too long ago. And like, I'm not going to go sit at a poker table. I, there's just yeah. no point. I play a little, but I just get cleaned out within about one second at a poker yeah. table. Yeah, yeah. No, we'd play. So we'd play pennies, nickels, dimes, quarters, and then dollars, I think. So it was never any high stakes gambling per se. Although they did try and talk me into actually going to a casino a couple times, and I readily decided not to. However, I have had a couple friends who have had some success stories at the casinos from our games of poker and uh, how that kind of grew into making money in one night or something. So. Who's to say? So it could happen for you. It can happen. Yeah, I might venture into blackjack. That's about as as uh, as risky as I will be mm-hmm. in, a, in a real casino. Yeah, I mean, my risk begins and ends with the slot machines usually. So <laughs> I just let fate decide it for me rather than other people. That seems like the way to go. Yes. You have a... Do, what? So... This is the last question I'll ask, and then I swear we'll talk about cybersecurity. Uh, if you're in a casino, what slot machine are you looking for? There's, you know, there's a million different. There's the yeah. Lord of the Rings slot machine, and the what are you looking for? I like the uh, Wheel of Fortune slot machine, um, just because I I think the jackpots are a little higher. Um, I also just I don't know. That's the one I just kind of naturally gravitated to when I was at Black Hat last year. So when I had my big five minutes and then just slowly wrote it down because I don't know when to end. And that's how they get you though. You know, 99% of gamblers stop before the next big win. So you just got to keep going. I'm not sure how scientific that stat is, but, uh, <laughs> but, but okay. Um, so let's talk RSA for a second. A couple of weeks ago, we were at RSA. Uh, like I said before, huge conference. A lot of interesting stuff there. Tyler, what did you, what are your big takeaways or what did you find really interesting in RSA this year? Yeah. So I thought that again, this, the scale of this was, I mean, I did not know what the scale was going to be. So I wasn't expecting it to be anything bigger than like a black hat. So right at black hat last year, there were a couple thousand people and there were a lot of sessions, but I thought it was going to be about equatable to that. However, uh, getting there, looking at their site, seeing all the sessions, they had like some 675 sessions, um, swaths of people. That's not even a word. Just so many people um, just flooded, flooding everywhere. Uh, it may not have been the right word, but it's a word. No, yeah, oh, excellent. Uh, yeah, no, it was just so much bigger than I thought it was going to be. And we had some great conversations with different, uh, different vendors there. I know I had a great conversation with one of them about secondary device uh, security and the importance of making sure those, uh, when I say secondary device, I mean, uh, secondhand, uh, right. You have this, uh, device you don't use anymore. You sell it just making sure you're clearing off the data though, because there've been a couple horror stories we heard about, um, about this secondhand device getting into someone else's hands. And then they realize there's a bunch of data on there. It could be passwords. It could be, um, patient data specifically in one of the instances we were talking about it was a piece of medical equipment that was stolen and sold on ebay that had passwords uh like i just said medical data on the different some of the different um uh, patients there it's just all very sensitive information and the 
usually you could hire like a third party vendor to clear out that stuff but because this was stolen that didn't happen and also third party vendors don't always do the jobs so uh that could also happen but and in uh, that situation crazy. they were they were lucky because it was a cybersecurity company that got it or cybersecurity yes. professional that got that piece of medical equipment went yeah. on there went this is awful i can get into all of this hospital systems yep. i'm going to call the hospital they, yeah. He called the hospital and then the hospital said, oh, yeah, that piece of equipment was stolen. And that's how they figured all of this stuff out. Yeah. But, you know, you had another story, too, where a device was supposed to be cleaned off and it wasn't. Yeah, exactly. So it was basically it was exactly that. So, yeah, we were talking with a different company and these were two different conversations in the same day with two very different. Um, one was a research company. The other was an actual uh, uh, solutions provider. And they were both talking about the same thing. So clearly device management uh, and things of that nature and clearing your data on those devices is becoming a bigger subject, especially if, and we even had, I think a third conversation that day that also revolved around that to some degree. So, um, but yes, with that other story though, that I had with them, uh, yeah, it was essentially the the, uh, second hand device got sold to someone else. They found a bunch of data on it. Now, because they weren't, like being malicious, uh, nothing happened with that. They just ended up clearing the data off of it. However, uh, I mean, just the implications of that are crazy. I mean, especially if you're, if you're thinking about it within hospitals, because I think hospitals is where uh, one of the bigger hotspots of which uh, devices are being uh, circulated through, um, just because there's always advancements and such. So there's just more opportunity for these secondhand devices to go on the market, which is just more opportunity to miss these, uh, the, the not clearing the data on these devices. So uh, I don't know. My big takeaway always with these kind of things and these conversations and um, these conferences is always, it's just a scary world out there and we're just living in it. And we're just little ants on the anthill and there's always someone trying to squash the anthill. One of the things I got from this, uh, the first day of keynotes, it was surprising how often uh, AI tools like ChatGPT were brought up. And you always have to take it a little bit with a grain of salt. Leslie, who we'll be talking to later, Leslie Carhart mentioned that at these events, there's always a, a flavor of the month. So every company is obviously trying to sell their products and they're going to try to shape their narrative into whatever's going on societally at that moment whether that's MITRE attack, whether that's, you know, ransomware attacks are happening, whether that's, and I think one of those things this year was ChatGPT. Um, clearly, it's going to have an impact. Clearly, AI tools are going to be used by people both leveraging attacks and people trying to defend against those attacks. But there was a lot of talk about what the impact that ChatGPT could have especially for phishing attacks, social engineering attacks, that they can basically create more elegant attacks that are harder to spot, that look more real. So when the attack comes, it really is going to look like it's coming from Tyler, who I know, and we were at an event, and Tyler's going to send me a photo sharing site where I can see pictures of the event, and it all looks very legitimate. So probably um, maybe more people get tricked into clicking on phishing emails because of this sort of stuff. But I I don't know. I think really, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, I think we're still figuring out what the impact of tools like ChatGPT will be. It's still growing. It's still evolving. 
Well, we asked Leslie about it. They said that they're you know, just kind of trying to tune it out. I do industrial cybersecurity, so I'm trying not to worry about that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I thought that was a, a, another interesting note. And then we also had some really great conversations, one of which was this conversation that we had with Leslie. I will warn you, by the way, before we get into it, we were in this little room. You know, you're at a huge conference with tens of thousands of people. So you're trying to find a quiet space to record. We recorded at RSA. We did find a kind of quiet room, but there was this wonderful industrial grade fan that was blowing the entire time. So you're going to get to listen to that fan through the entire conversation we had with Leslie. Um, I think they they made a lot of great points throughout this. I mean, Leslie does incident response for Dragos. Uh, so that was an interesting conversation for me. I mean, uh, Leslie told a, a really interesting story, which I won't ruin here about trying to figure out the root cause of a power plant that kept turning itself on, uh, immediately everybody went, it's gotta be China. It must be China. China's doing this to us. It was not China. I won't tell you what it is. Listen to Leslie. It's an interesting story. Um, but I thought really thinking about incident response, I never thought about it because I don't, it's not an industry that I work in, but as it really felt listening to Leslie talk about it, it was like CSI cyber really diving into these things and trying to figure out what is going on. Why did this, why was this power plant turning itself on? And so for somebody who has an engineering brain, which Leslie definitely does, was that child that took things apart uh, at home and and uh, frustrated the parents. It seems like a perfect profession to go into. It's not only in an industrial subject, how do these machines work, but let's get to the heart of why it broke, why something happened to it, why this attack happened. It just seems like a perfect pairing with Leslie and incident response. Yeah, and another thing that I, I really took away from this is Incident response is not purely cyber, right? I mean, it is cyber, but it's not purely these like threat actors and then you're hunting the threats down, you know? It can be anything. Because um, I know going into the conversation with Leslie, I'm like, oh yeah, instant response. Uh, they probably do like a lot with like threat actors, threat intelligence, things of that nature, tracking them down. But I mean, as I learned, and as they said, I mean, it's not always, and I'm not, not going to try and give away anything here, but it's not always what it seems. Uh, there's more that meets the eye, and I know that's a Transformers quote, but it's very applicable here. Transformers quotes, always applicable. We also had a, a off, uh, not recording, we had a long conversation with Leslie about nerd culture and Star Wars, and so this the Transformers thing fits in perfectly. It does. Um yeah, it as I said, it wasn't China. Um, yeah, interesting stuff. Also, can I just say, Leslie Carhart, unbelievably interesting human being. Um, aside from from being a cybersecurity practitioner, uh, from working with Dragos, from doing incident response, uh, they're a I think fifth degree black belt. Uh, fourth or fifth? Yeah. Fourth or fifth? Yeah. Um, the dedicated teacher, so teaching cybersecurity and trying to make it more inclusive, also teaching martial arts, uh, is retired from the United States Air Force Reserves. Just a fascinating human being. And you'll hear that in the podcast. 
is my curiosity got the best of me. And we asked a lot of cybersecurity questions and, and Leslie gave a lot of terrific answers. But I also just asked a lot of questions about Leslie because I, I find them fascinating. Oh, yeah. Agreed. So with that, why don't we go ahead and, and bring Leslie in? Leslie Carhart is the Director of Incident Response for North America at the Industrial Cybersecurity Company, Dragos, leading response to and proactively hunting for threats in customers' ICS environments. Uh, as I said, also retired from the United States Air Force Reserves, uh, has received recognition such as DEFCON Hacker of the Year, SANS Difference Maker, Power Player from SC Magazine, also, uh, as I said, dedicated to to um, helping new generations come into cybersecurity, martial artist, really uh, just a renaissance person, does everything. So great conversation with Leslie. Uh, let's go and bring Leslie in. Hey there, we are live at the RSA conference. Luckily for us, we have been nice enough, or somebody here has been nice enough to talk to us, Leslie Carhart from Dragos. Really happy to talk to you today. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. So I, I want to start where we always start. I need to know about your background. You have one of those wonderful cybersecurity backgrounds that is really eclectic. So let's let's start with uh, your military and how you found your way into cybersecurity and more why you find, found your way into industrial cybersecurity. So I have such a prototypical background in cybersecurity that sometimes I don't like talking about it because most people don't do the goofy hackery things that I, I did to get into cybersecurity, but you see it in every movie. Um, I started out as a kid. I grew up on a farm in Illinois, and there were two things to do. There were farm or learn how to use the computer we used for inventory. So me um, being slightly allergic to the sun, learned how to use the, the 286 at the time um, and learned how to program when I was seven or eight. And I got hired for my first programming job when I was like 15 years old because it was a different era during the dot-com boom. Um, and you could do something like that. And I was kind of involved in that hackery space even as a kid, but of course the bubble burst and I had to get back to reality. And so me being a, a very spontaneous decision maker, I decided I'd go join the military because that sounded exciting. I enlisted and um, they asked me what job I wanted to do and I wanted something with computers. And they were very confused at the time. This was early on, long before the cyber was a thing in the military. So they were like, well, um, do you want to fix airplane computers? And I was like, yeah, sure, that sounds fun. Let's do that. <laughs> so they sent me to nine months of school to learn how to solder circuit boards and control systems for uh, broken airplane parts. Um, and yeah, yeah. I, I actually stayed in the military and then into the, into the reserves for 21 years. I retired last year. What was the biggest thing you took apart in your parents' house that made them the angriest? Because we just talked, full disclosure, before the bug, I just asked if you were one of those kids that, that took everything in your home apart, and the answer was yes. I, I don't know if my, my, my dad is going to listen to this, so I, I, I don't know if I've admitted to everything yet that I took apart and I put back together, but um, I, I do know at one point uh, I was learning how to connect to remote computer systems via modem, and he got so frustrated with me using the modem at all hours and using up the phone line that he installed a switch on the ceiling that was just too high for me to reach as a kid so he could flip off the phone line. So I'd, I'd be using the modem to connect to stuff and he'd just walk into the basement and he was a lot taller than me. So he'd reach up there and he'd flip the switch and he'd kill the line to the modem. So uh, I, I do recall that not so fondly. <laughs> it was a constant war between us. 
it makes sense. Um, just to, add, to ask a little bit about RSA, since we're here at RSA, uh, what have you been seeing here? So I'm still pretty early here, but what have you been seeing? What kind of trends? Has there been anything that has surprised you about the conference, about the conversations that are going on so far? So this year, it's it's been interesting to see some of the things that were really trendy last year kind of go away, and then there's there's new trends. I mean, the objectives of these businesses, you, you do have to keep in mind as an attendee, they're always trying to sell their products, and they're going to shape the narrative of whatever is going on in the world and whatever is the hot topic in cybersecurity around whatever it is that they sell which I, I find intriguing just to, from an intellectual perspective, you know, is how do they sell their, their data diode or their SIM or their XDR around what's going on in the world this month? And they always have to shape their story around how it's going to solve the problem du jour. So uh, that, that's been interesting this year. I mean, of course, there's a lot of talk about ransomware. There's also a lot more talk about SBOM, which is really interesting, which is a real legitimate thing. That's a real interesting problem to chat, tackle. A lot, a lot of discussion about supply chain, of course. But um, yeah, as you walk around the floor in RSA, if you, if you watch it all with a skeptical eye, what you're doing is you're, you're walking around to see how people are taking these popular narratives. Like a couple years, it was miter attack, which is also a really important thing, but that was the flavor of the year. And everybody was shaping their project product around miter attack. And then this year, they're all shaping it around like SBOM and around supply chain compromise. So real problems. It's just interesting to see which one that people have picked to talk about that year. It was interesting for me yesterday going to the keynotes just to see how many people were talking about ChatGPT. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense that it's happening, but obviously that's the story. And I know when we were registering for sessions to go to, every one of the GPT sessions was full. So clearly that, I guess that is going to be one of the big stories in the, in the animating the future. You know, I, I'm doing my best to kind of try to tune it out as best as I can. <laughs> see, so you go into industrial cybersecurity because you want to go back in the time machine. You just don't want to go. You don't want to go into the future because there's things like chat GPT there. So you want to go back to like 2002 and work with Windows NT some more and things are okay. Okay. No, we all have to deal with things like uh, with the uh, like machine learning and chat GPT. We have to we have to be cognizant of them as security professionals. And there are real implications of chat GPT in all kinds of different defensive and offensive cybersecurity practices as well as cybercrime. Absolutely. So yeah, we have to be aware of how it can be misused and how it can be used as a tool. Are a lot of them overblown? I certainly personally think that a lot of the speculation about the wonders of chat GPT are somewhat overblown, but it's a tool like everything else. So we have to be aware of it existing in the toolkit. Um, this is more of a, a sort of a personal question for you than about RSA, but I know you do a lot of teaching in and out from, for your work and outside. Why is it that you feel like that's important? Why has that become such a big part of what you do uh, outside of Dragos and out, outside of RSA? I enjoy teaching selfishly. I, I think it's a lot of fun to reach people and impart information on them. But also because when I was a kid and I wanted to get into cybersecurity, nobody helped me. It was extremely male dominant, dominated at the time. It was extremely exclusionary. There was a lot of gatekeeping in the 90s. Um, if you didn't look a certain way, if you weren't from a certain background, if you didn't know the right people, you just could not break into the field uh, unless you were just very, very lucky. So 
I had to go it alone for the most part at the beginning of my career. And I don't want other people to have to do that. That's ridiculous. It's stupid. We need a lot of people. So of course I'm trying to do a lot of mentorship and I'm trying to do a lot of outreach and teaching and things so that other people don't have to do that because gosh darn it, we really need the people. Well, and at this point, why would you want to do this gatekeeping? Everybody's talking about this cybersecurity skill shortage. There's not enough people. There's not enough. I mean, we sort of need anybody who is competent and wants to be in the field. It should be a pretty open door. It should be, but you still see it. You still see it. And I think some of that is just human nature. It's people see people like them more as human than people who look different or practice a different religion or come from a different background. They see them as the other, you know, and that happens in all kinds of fields. Um, but we see that in cybersecurity tool. If you're not the prototypical nerd, if you don't quote Star, Star Wars or Star Trek from heart, uh, you know, if you don't look a certain way, if you aren't from a certain background, people are going to be suspicious of your ability to do cybersecurity well in some cases. And we really have to fight that as an industry. We have to put people in less of a box uh, to, to take advantage of these wonderful people who could be incredible cybersecurity professionals. Makes sense. So let's talk uh, incident response. That's what you do. So let's talk incident response. I know you're, if you, if you don't mind telling us, I know you are here to give a talk on incident response. Can you kind of give us the, the I'll, this is going to make me sound old, the Cliff Notes version of, uh, of what your talk is about here? Yes, so I will be talking with uh, with two other amazing women, Wendy Whitnor and uh, and uh, Katie Nichols, and we will be moderated by Lily Hayes Newman, the amazing journalist, and we are going to be talking about uh, cybersecurity war stories for incident response. So, what's going on in the incident response space? Um, this year and what's trending, what's changing, and what types of cases we're seeing. Uh, people always like stories, so we're going to tell some stories about what's going on in that space and, and what's new and what people should be looking out for. So I'm obviously going to have to ask for one of those stories. Well, this will come out after the show. We're not going to give away anything, but, but, but if you don't mind giving us one, what is one of your incident response stories that, uh, that, that you like to tell? Boy, uh, my most wild recent one that that my coworkers just love is the power plant that turns turned itself on um we got called in to investigate a peaker plant and peaker plants are the power plants that you use during the summertime when there's a bunch of air conditioning on if you live somewhere where there's multiple seasons um so you have extra power plants that when everybody uses a lot more power during the summer you turn them on but this was during the winter and we got called by a customer who was like, our peaker plant just turned on by itself. It must be China. And uh, my colleagues were all like, wow, it must be China. It takes like 12 buttons to turn on that plant. So we go out to this remote plant in the dead of winter and we do a really good forensic investigation and we see no signs of evil. There's like two people there. They were looking at each other. There's security cameras. We do a full forensic rundown of the few computers in there. Everything looks fine. There's no malware. There's no sign of hacking. Nothing's even connected to the internet. Um, and we're like, yeah, this is, this is really strange. And it all comes down to this computer that's out in a shed by the by the equipment. Uh, it's like one of those, those uh, outdoor hardware store sheds. And... Uh, they go in there and there's a bunch of weird stuff up on the computer screen, like command prompt and stuff. And they're like, it's getting hacked. It's getting hacked. And like, yeah, it does for a moment look like it's getting hacked. But I look at it a little more and I'm like, why would a bad person 
you know, I get command prompt, I get calculator, but why would they open like the RDP GUI? Why would they open Notepad? Like, like all these Windows applications are open on it. I'm like, yeah, this looks kind of random. And I look at it a little bit more. And I look at how long those windows had focus, like how long somebody had clicked on them. It was like 10 seconds. And I'm like, it's like somebody's bonking windows applications open on the computer. And I'm like, no, no. And uh, I just don't buy it's a hacker. And everybody's uh, still really freaked out. So I've got to prove my, my gut feeling that this was not malicious. This wasn't a hacker. And so I'm like, it has to have been something just randomly clicking buttons on this computer. So I tell my coworker to go out by the keyboard and mouse that are on there and freeze them and heat them up and see if that makes it happen. And that didn't work. But then I start looking at the touch screen in the computer and I'm like, well, it's kind of, it's kind of sensitive. So I'm like, okay, open up paint and leave it on overnight. Let's see what happens. Sure enough, the next morning they come in and there's pretty little whirly gigs all over this touch screen on paint. So what happened is you get this really bright screen in the dead of winter in a slightly climate controlled outdoor shed that's not fully sealed. And you get this really bright screen in the dark and all the bugs come and they land on this really bright screen. And it was like 10,000 monkeys at 10,000 keyboards. That was the one night after however many years that they hit the right sequence of buttons to turn on the power plant. Were people skeptical <laughs> when you told them this? Like, that can't. there's no way bugs could have done this. I mean, I proved it really well. I, you know, it sounds like I was just like, oh, just open paint. You know, that's how my coworkers tell it now. Leslie Walt, Waltston, they were just like, oh, oh, uh, just, just open paint. No, I spent hours and hours of doing forensics to look at what happened on the computer. And I could see things from a timeline perspective, from a narrative perspective on the computer happening. It was like, okay, so we know the exact time the power plant turned on. And we know within a few seconds, these other windows opened up in the computer and nothing else happened on the computer. It didn't connect anything. Their network was offline. Nothing else happened. But we see suddenly a bunch of windows that have buttons on the desktop get clicked. And then, of course, I proved it by having them open paint. And then they saw the, the random clicks all over the screen the next day. So it's an interesting world, industrial incident response. I don't believe it. I would think that your your engineer's brain, which obviously you have, somebody who likes to see how things work, I would think incident response is perfect for you because you get to do the kind of like CSI cyber thing and dive into to, to things like this. I, I imagine it's the perfect career for you. Oh, it is, but it's also the engineer gut feeling. Like if, you, if you're a good engineer, you also have a good gut feeling about things and you have to have that kind of gut feeling over, over some years of experience to be really good at incident response. It's like, this doesn't feel like a hacker or this feels wrong and maybe it is something malicious. So being able to kind of intuit as well as take things apart. So that's the interesting challenge that goes along with learning and being good at incident response. Absolutely. Obviously, you guys work in OT, cybersecurity. Do you find at a conference like this or just in your regular job, do you still find, a pushback may not be the, the right word, but people who are reluctant to even attempt cybersecurity on the operational side of things? Is that still an issue that you guys come to? Or do you think it's getting more accepted now as, look, if we want to do business and keep the lines running, making beer, widgets or whatever else, we've got to have cybersecurity. It's a mix. It varies vastly by region and by vertical. Some industry verticals are much farther ahead than others in industrial cybersecurity. They have more funding, they have more staff, they have more regulation even. Um, and then others are like still running on a tiny margin and uh, that makes it 
rather challenging for them to do any cybersecurity at all. Look at municipal utilities, look at manufacturing. Um, so, so we see the whole spectrum of maturity in cybersecurity for OT. Is there anything that, like, what is the message that you guys are trying to get out here about incident response, about what you guys are, what you're trying to get across here, since that's what you do at a place like RSA? Do the basics, do the basic foundations. You, you might think you're very mature in terms of your IT enterprise cybersecurity, and you might be very mature in that space, but doing OT cybersecurity and, and OT incident response is totally different. I promise you, I'm not trying to sell you something. It's just really different. You're dealing with legacy systems. You're dealing with process consequences. People can die. The power can go out. Water can be contaminated. All those things can really happen in those environments. So it's a very different space to work in. You don't have XDR. You don't have EDR. So you really need to start from the ground up. And that means even if you're really mature on the other side of things, you need to start building a security program from the beginning. And that means things like basic security monitoring, asset inventories, vulnerability management, and having an incident response plan and having some idea what you're going to do in those spaces if you actually have a cybersecurity incident. They really do happen. So, um, yeah, you can't count on your enterprise plan to be enough there, your enterprise technologies to be enough there. You have to look at it discreetly. Absolutely. Um, to, to, I'm going to ask you to prognosticate a little bit. What do you think, and I know there's a lot of this going around at RSA, but what do you think the big stories in cybersecurity and industrial cybersecurity will be in the coming year? What are the things that you're watching right now that you think will be the bigger trends? Supply chain compromise. I agree with people on that. That's very, very worrying. We've seen some over the last several years, but even recently, some very scary supply chain compromises. Adversaries, for the most part, especially criminal adversaries, have gotten more and more efficient as time has gone on. They are maybe attacking less, but they're being more effective in their attacks because they have limited resources as well. The economy affects them as well and uh, detection affects them. So they have to be good at what they do and they have to choose their, their targets intelligently. So things like compromising a big supply chain vendor and getting into a bunch of organizations, yeah, it's a lot of effort and there's a lot of expense and work that goes into that, but the payoff can be very, very good. It can be very efficient. So yeah, we're gonna see more supply chain compromises. People know that that works now. And that can, that can come in a lot of flavors. Um, that can come in, in compromising, simply compromising software, or it can come from compromising the bits and pieces that people use in software. So there we get into SBOM. So a lot of the topics that are the flavor of the year right now really are quite relevant. Uh, and so, um, yeah, there are things we have to explore more because they are become, becoming more of a problem and for good, sensible reasons. And so with an incident, incident response plans uh, and maybe companies that don't really have one in place, uh, where's a good place for them to kind of start? So you have a couple different options for like frameworks for life cycles for incident response. So you've got SANS Pickerel. That's a great model for the flow of incident response. And you can also look at NIST framework as well or, or the DODs, you know, but Basically, the framework for how you respond to an emergency is the same in medicine as it is in cybersecurity or in fire response or, you know, all, all those emergency response fields. You kind of have to understand what's going on. You have to prepare first. You have to understand what's going on. Then you have to make decisions about containing the problem and then eventually finding a way to get back to where you were again. That's that's the nature of responding to a pandemic. It's the nature of responding to a uh, a hurricane. 
those things exist across all types of disaster response. So choose a model, a life cycle that encapsulates that, that, that works for you and think about what you do to make the decisions at each one of those stages. But before you do any of that, again, you have to have those fundamental foundations in place. I can't magically go into an environment and do incident response when people don't know what computers they have or what network connections they have or, you know, what what operating systems they're using. If if I get called into that, I have to go do that at however many hundreds of dollars an hour. I, I feel really badly about it. Just as an individual, as Leslie, I feel really badly about that because I'm going into doing foundational work that could have been done five years before. Um, and I have to do that to be able to do an investigation. I have to know what computers are out there. I have to know how they're connected to each other. All that basic stuff, if you don't have it in place, you're going to have to do it in an emergency or you're going to have to pay somebody a lot of money to do it for you during an emergency. So really, this is just me as an individual here, not speaking for my employer. Save yourself some money. I mean, my employer wants to do this as well. We, we really do care about people being secure. Our mission is safeguarding civilization. But like, save yourself some money here. Do these basics in advance. And, and that includes understanding things like basic architecture and having a plan for responding to an incident. We've talked a lot to some people recently about that kind of thing, about, um, about whatever it is, tabletop exercise, just any kind of preparation. You don't want the first time you think about all of this stuff to be the day that your systems have been ransomwareed or something like that. It's just so, so sad and disheartening for us when we come into those cases. I mean, it's horrible. It's the worst day in these companies' lives sometimes. And when it's a, when you're talking about industrial incidents, there might be a life and safety issue. They might not know if they can continue operations. And stopping production, stopping processes can be massively expensive. This isn't the same as like, oh, our web server is compromised. Our website has to go down for a while. This is like, will we be in business if we shut down for 24 hours? Will we be able to remain as a company? So yeah, we feel really bad. When people haven't done any preparation, we do our best. We come in and we do everything we can to get them to a place where they need to be. But you know, if some of those things had been done in advance, it would have saved them so much stress and so much grief and so much money. I got to ask, you You called yourself, prior to us recording, you called yourself a nerd a couple of times. What's your particular flavor of nerdery? What's your thing that you geek out on? Geek, geek out on? Uh, martial arts, actually. But I mean, I like all the different fandoms, of course. I like, I like Star Trek and Star Wars and things. But um, martial arts, actually. I'm a fourth degree black belt and I teach kids martial arts at night. See, Tyler and I should have known that before we came in here. I didn't know we were in danger when we walked in here. I didn't know. So how long have you been doing that? Um, about 13 years now. It's amazing. Leslie, thank you so much for talking to us. Always a pleasure to talk to anybody from Dragos, but we've been wanting to talk to you for a while. So thanks so much for coming on. An absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. There you have it, everybody. Leslie Carhart, Director of Incident Response for North America at Dragos. Great conversation. A lot of really interesting stuff in there. Uh, you know, we asked Leslie what her primary concern was at RSA, and they said supply chain compromise, which we've had a, a bunch of conversations about that. But I, I thought that was really interesting. But the thing that I really um, took to heart after this conversation with Leslie is her teaching background. So I asked her early in the conversation, which you just heard, about why she 
got or why they, sorry, got into teaching. And Leslie said that, you know, when they tried to get into cybersecurity, it was a very male dominated profession. There, there wasn't anybody to, to take Leslie's hand and, and welcome them into the profession. And so Leslie kind of had to go it alone. And I think, especially in this era, and Leslie was eloquent about this in the conversation, but in this era where there is a cybersecurity skills gap, it really needs to be, to use a political term, that open tent. We've got, if there are people who are competent, who are willing, who want to be in this profession, it we're at a point now where it shouldn't continue to be this older white male dominated profession or however you want to uh, um, classify it. It's it, it. We need to open, throw the doors open to anybody and everybody who's got a competency for this, anybody and everybody who wants to be a part of it. And I think the kind of efforts that people like Leslie are doing to bring people into this tent are really valuable. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of similar to the conversation we had with Sam May uh, in a previous podcast where it's not necessarily a labor shortage, it's a skills shortage, right? So you have people that are willing, but companies that have too high of standards for who they want as their cybersecurity person. And it's more so of they need to adapt and be willing to take on, and it seems to be mostly like military people that are uh, retired from the military and are looking for their next job, but they don't have the necessarily necessary skills to complete the job. So uh, these employers should be, or potential employers should be willing to do the training to get the people to par. And this obviously does not apply solely to military. However, that is the general trend is that it is a lot of military personnel, hence Leslie, hence Sam May, hence this person, that person. Uh, so it's just, again, it's the... The need for these solutions providers, these companies um, looking to grow and expand their cybersecurity departments, as they should, because cybersecurity is important, uh, but, and just being willing to do on-the-job training and maybe even have some courses or something available to them to help get them up to speed. Because again, we're not talking about a labor shortage. There are enough people out there who are looking for jobs. It's a skills shortage. And um, we just need to find a way to bridge that gap of um, teaching these people that are willing and hungry, like Leslie's talking about, these people are very willing, and they, if, as long as they're hungry to learn, then they're they're uh, strong and competent uh, potential workers for that company. So, it's it's a very interesting paradox, um, but it's an important one to talk about and keep the discussion going. Uh, otherwise, because if, uh, if if we stop talking about it, nothing's going to change. Yeah, and it it really it. You know, every career it takes all kinds. There's something from Leslie's LinkedIn page that I wanted to to read a part of. Um, I, I found it this morning as I was doing a little bit more research before we recorded this this podcast. And I'll I'll leave it on this, and then we'll do our our closing. Um, but uh, Leslie posted a few days ago on LinkedIn. I have to let you all in on something. At this point in my career, I'm privileged to be a mentor to a lot of young people, especially veterans and college students. Uh, and then goes on to say that a lot of these people are going to places they and they tell Leslie they want to be like them. And these are people who go, as Leslie said, to MIT, Stanford, Purdue, usually in the second year of a PhD program. I was a terrible youth. Yeah, I eventually went to DePaul, which is respectable, and I have a three okay undergrad degrees, merely because I had no choice but to enlist at 17 in the military, kick the crap out of me. I went to community college, uh, 
first the hard way around. I almost didn't graduate from high school. I was miserable, unhappy, uncool, goth kid who hacked computers and swore a lot. Those schools would have blown their noses at my application and probably banned me from the campus for being a delinquent. What I want to say is if you're one of those rock star young people, super impressed by you, you've picked one hell of a role model, keep it up and don't burn out. If you're that totally screwed up teenager, though, I might not get to see you. I might not get to see you at award ceremonies and touted by the top professors at conventions, but you can make it too, even if nobody is ever in your corner. I think that's the whole DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion conversation is it is helpful to see somebody who looks like you, sounds like you, speaks like you, went through a similar experience, which is part of that. Let's, let's, let's throw these doors open and let everybody in. I am now off my high horse. But I will transition by saying, if you don't like anything we're saying or you love what we're saying, you can contact Tyler and I. Maybe I shouldn't give you Tyler's. I'll give you mine. I'm at G Cohen, G-C-O-H-E-N, at cfemedia.com. And I am twall at cfemedia.com. And you can direct all your complaints to me. Yeah, and we'll happily host like a roundtable for everybody. Open for discussion. Uh, you can say what you want. We'll listen. Um, and of course, if you want other great content, because we do produce a lot of fantastic content here at ICS Pulse, um, visit us at industrialcybersecuritypulse.com or if you prefer the shorthand version, icspulse.com. And you'll find we have a slew of great content from videos, of course, uh, this podcast, which drops every Tuesday, as you, every other Tuesday, I should say, and uh, as well as some other articles, some serialized content, a bunch of great stuff that can help you broaden your knowledge. And within uh, the field of thought leadership and help you do your job better. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another one of these, another great conversation on the ICS Pulse podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you as always for joining us. We really appreciate you out there. Uh, we will talk to you next time. Stay safe out there.